morning. And uh, if you have a Bible with you, could I invite you to turn to 1 John? It's page 1225 in the Pew Bibles. And we're going to pick up from where we left off last week. And the question that we wrestled with then was this. How do you know that you know Jesus? How do you know that you know Jesus? And based on verses 3 to 11, we felt that according to John, there were three things that prove or reveal or indicate that you know Jesus. First is, you obey his commands. You strive to form your life in obedience to Christ. Secondly, you walk as Christ walked. Your attitudes, your words, and your actions should be increasingly Christ-like. And thirdly, you love one another. Obedience, imitation, love. And we call these the M&S tests, the moral and social tests. And together, those three things ensure that our lip and our life match up. That words and actions connect. That any claims to know Jesus are backed up and affirmed by lifestyle. And that there are no glaring contradictions or inconsistencies. And this morning we're going to pick it up at verse 12. And all of a sudden... There seems to be a definite shift in John's language and tone. As we said last week, verses 3 to 11 are deeply challenging. They're heart-searching. They're slightly uncomfortable. And some of you went out past me last Sunday and you expressed that. A few of you actually said, is there any chance of something a little light and fluffy for a change? Well, today, at least initially, we come across some very personal words of support and affirmation, not necessarily light and fluffy. Because John appears to pause for a moment. He just pauses in order to encourage those who are genuine Christians. And what he wants to do is he wants to affirm you who are genuine Christians in your identity. And today we're going to look at verses 12 to 17, but we're going to start with 12 to 14. And as usual, we'll stand for the public reading of God's word. Let's stand together. 1 John 2, verse 12. I am writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young people, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, dear children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young people, because you are strong and the word of God lives in you and you have overcome the evil one. Grab a seat. John, uh, he addresses three groups of people, or so it would seem. And a lot now depends on the translation of the Bible that you're actually looking at. 
And I kind of need to deal with this because this has and this can cause a certain amount of confusion and misunderstanding. If you're looking at a pew Bible, it talks about children, fathers and young men. If you use a TNIV, today's New International Version, it talks about children, fathers and young people. If you're using a New Living Translation, which I know lots of you do, it talks about God's children, but then it talks about those who are mature in the faith and those who are young in the faith. So the question is this, who is John actually speaking to? Which version is right? Discuss. Well, let me suggest, and this is a perfectly legitimate perspective, that John is in fact speaking to all Christians and to every Christian. He might seem to target one particular people group at one particular time, but it's entirely valid to accept that what he says to any one group applies to all. What is true for each is true for all. In other words, if you're a Christian kid, a Christian dad, or a young Christian man, this is written to you and about you. If you are mature in the faith, if you are young in the faith, this applies to you. If you are a Christian mum, if you are a young Christian woman, this applies to you. And actually, the warm, affectionate pastoral title, Dear Children, which is there in verse 12 and verse 14, is, if you like, the catch-all term. And if you scan your eyes down the rest of this chapter, you'll notice that it's that particular term that John uses in verses 1, in verses 18, and verses 28, whenever he's addressing all Christians. So don't get too hung up on who is John speaking to at this point. Why just the fathers? It applies to everyone. And the real question is this. What is John actually saying to us? What is it that he wants to communicate and share with every single child of God? And in these verses, we discover three things. Three things that should provide a real solid foundation for discipleship and growth. These three things should encourage and motivate all Christians. Because they are amazing realities. And here they are. Your sins are forgiven. You know Jesus. You have overcome the evil one. You probably noticed that in those verses John seemed to repeat himself. He actually said many of the things twice. But why not? These truths are worth reinforcing. And some of us here today need to be reminded of them. And need to go away from here having embraced these. Because these are true of you. Now I realise there are some of you who don't always feel forgiven. You don't always feel like you know Jesus. You don't always feel very victorious. But let's be clear. Just because you don't feel forgiven, known or victorious doesn't mean it isn't true. As a child of God, these realities are true. Why? Because God's word declares it. And so we live in the light of what God says as opposed to how we feel. 
so important that we get this. And so what I want to do is just look at each in turn. And the first is this. Your sins are forgiven. Now, if you've been following this series, you'll know that John has already spent quite a bit of time talking about sin and forgiveness. And we looked at this a few weeks ago when we came to verses 5 to 10 of the first chapter. And there's that key phrase, that well-known, familiar phrase of John's where he says this, If we confess our sins, God, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins. And how is that possible? We'll have a look at the first couple of verses of chapter 2. It's possible, why? Because of Jesus, who is our advocate, who is the righteous one, who is our atoning sacrifice. And that is why this is so important. That's why it is such a focal point of our worship. Because as we eat bread and drink wine, we remember who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for us. So that when we confess, and I know many of you have taken that opportunity again this morning in the quietness. That as we confess, we can be sure we're forgiven. Not because we feel like it. But because God says, if you confess your sins, he'll forgive you fact look again at verse 15 because there are five more words that kind of complete this your sins are forgiven here's the five words on account of his name and remember as always in the bible the name indicates the nature and so when John talks about the name of Jesus, he is talking about the nature of Jesus as saviour and rescuer. And so child of God this morning, which I am kind of assuming is the vast majority who are here. Child of God, your sins are forgiven on account of Jesus. And so if you have confessed your sins... You're forgiven. End of period fact truth. And what I want to do is this. I want to encourage you to say this to yourself this morning. And I'm actually going to create a moment's space and silence. And I actually want each of you to just say this. Because of Jesus. I am a forgiven child of God. See, so many people struggle with their identity. Who am I? Low self-esteem. So wound up about what other people think of them. Let me give you a minute just to speak truth to yourself. Secondly, you know Jesus. And again, based on last week's text, John had been challenging people about their claims to know Jesus. And having worked through that, having worked through the M&S tests, the moral and social tests, John now affirms them in their knowledge. And he says, listen, you know Jesus who is from the very beginning. You know the the eternal, pre-existent Christ. You know him. And one of the amazing privileges of being a Christian is to actually say that 
I know Jesus. To be a friend of Jesus. Sometimes we sing that great hymn, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. Or last Sunday night, the praise group sang these lyrics, Befriended, befriended by the King above all kings. And again, I know some of us struggle with this idea of knowing Jesus as or to be a friend. Some, some of us really do struggle with that. But listen to what Jesus said, and John recorded it in his gospel. And these are some of the most beautifully intimate words of scripture. Greater loves no one than this. To lay down one's life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. Now we're connecting last week and this week. I no longer call you servants. Instead, I have called you friends. You did not choose me. I chose you. And I realize, again, could spend a fair amount of time pouring over those words, but the point I just want to make and emphasize this morning is that as a child of God, you know Jesus as a friend. Let me just give you a moment to again speak truth to yourself. Again, I'll guarantee you there's some of us sitting here going, I'm struggling with this. I don't feel like it. It's not about how we feel. It's about what God says. And then the third truth is this. You've overcome the evil one. That doesn't say, it doesn't mean he's gone away. That he will never accuse or tempt us. Every Christian knows the reality of accusation and temptation in their day-to-day discipleship. But what it does mean and what it does say is this, that we have been rescued from his grip. He still attempts to influence us, but as a result of knowing Jesus, as a result of the gift of forgiveness made possible because of the saving, rescuing work of Jesus, the evil one has no more power over us. As Paul writes in his letter to the Colossian Christians, Jesus, via the cross, has disarmed the powers and the authorities. You see, in knowing Jesus and having our sins forgiven, we have overcome the enemy of our souls. We are not defeated. And therefore, we must live in the light of that truth, again, irrespective of how we feel sometimes. And so our third statement in affirming our identity based on God's word Because of Jesus, I have overcome the evil one. Just before we uh, kind of leave this short section, John appears to offer an interesting explanation regarding the source of our potential strength as Christians and how we actually continue to overcome the evil one on an ongoing basis. Look at the tail end of verse 14. Fascinating bit. And the word of God lives in you, John says. 
Do you know, one of the critical ways we derive strength as Christians is via our engagement with and our immersion in God's word. And that is something we constantly stress here at Windsor. And therefore, the Bible remains and must always remain central to everything we think about, say, and do. And whenever Paul was uh, talking about the battle we find ourselves in as Christians, he spoke on one occasion about the need to be properly kitted out for the fight. And as he talked about the armor of God, one of the key items of warfare that he listed was the sword of the Spirit, which he says is the word of God. It is absolutely fundamental to our faith, fundamental to our growth, fundamental to our survival as Christians, that we are Bible-saturated Christians. That we absorb and we consume this living bread so that it lives in us, so that it becomes part of our spiritual bloodstream. It is the word that we hide in our hearts so that we will not sin. It is every word that comes from the mouth of God that sustains us. This is our essential word. And one of the challenges out of this morning is to reflect on our recent personal engagement with this. If the word of God is going to live in us, then we need to be reading it. We need to be meditating on it. We need to be praying it. We need to be studying it. We need to be discussing it. Don't let days and weeks pass without intentional, personal interaction with Scripture. John says, listen, you're strong. Do you know why you're strong? Do you know why you can overcome the evil one? Because the Word of God lives in you. Challenges me that. Again, something I've confessed a number of times. Do you know, I often like end up studying this in order to bring it here. But I have to reflect back on a week and think, how much time have I actually spent feeding on God's word for myself this week? And having finished this part of his letter and having encouraged and affirmed his Christian readers, John then, and we're, we're getting there, John then uh, returns to the subject of love. If you were here last week, this was one of the big issues. But this time, the issue is not about who we should love, but about what we should not love. Let's stand again uh, and read verses 15 to 17. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If you love the world, love for the Father is not in you. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful people, the lust of the eyes, and their boasting about what they have and do, they come not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. Grab a seat. In the space of uh, three verses there, John mentions the world six times. And he says, listen, do not love the world. The question is, what's he referring to? What does John mean by the world? Well, the Bible uses and tends to use that word in different ways to mean different things. For example, it can mean the created universe, the globe in which we live on. So that can't be what John is talking about here because creation reveals God. And elsewhere in Scripture, we are told to be thankful for the world we live in. So so that's clearly not what he's talking about here. Secondly, it can mean the human race, all humanity. John 3.16, for God so loved the world. So again, that can't be what the apostle is referring to. 
Because we're to love our neighbor. We're to love those around us. We are to love the world in that sense. So what is it? Well, the third meaning is all that exists in opposition to God. All it is alien to. All it is at enmity with God. And that's what John appears to be getting at here. Do not love what is not of God. And if you do, then according to John, and he's direct here, the love of the Father is not in you. In other words, you can't love both. They're incompatible. See, if you're going to love God, then you simply cannot love the world. Doesn't work. Can't work. Never works. James puts it uh, rather bluntly in his epistle. Friendship with the world is hatred towards God. The two are mutually exclusive as objects of love. Now there is a sense in which this, this kind of challenges our thinking, but what John then does for us, and I find this so helpful because I kind of need things to be relatively simple. And I find this so helpful here because what John does is he selects three things that characterize the world. Three things that are not of God. Three things that are alien to God. Three things that are at enmity with God. Three ways of the world that you must not entertain, you must not buy into, you must not love in any shape or form. And now John is back to his biting direct self and he identifies three worldly characteristics. Now sometimes whenever Christians talk about worldliness, They define it in terms of what people do or don't do or the places that people visit or don't visit. There's been some serious nonsense talked about in terms of worldliness down through the years. Complete misunderstanding, I believe, of Scripture. But John takes this to a far deeper level. He deals with motives and attitudes and will which ultimately dictate our actions. And so here, what John does is he identifies and he names three elements of worldliness. Three things that lure you away from loving God. So this is worldliness, okay? The first is the cravings of sinful people or, as in some translations, literally the desires of the flesh. This is about self-indulgence. This is about excess. This is about abuse. This includes things like gluttony, sexual immorality, material extravagance, selfish ambition. Pursue those. Give in to those things and your love will be redirected. Second characteristic. Lust of the eyes. This is where we want what we don't have. This is where you covet. Become envious. Greedy. This is where bigger and better and more become the drivers. It's where image and what other people think of us dictates our decisions to an unhealthy level. Again, the lust of the eyes redirects your love. Worldliness. And then the third characteristic, the boasting of what we have and do. In other words, the pride of life. This is about status and recognition. It's about wanting attention, human glory, adulation. It's about one-upmanship, self-promotion, often at the expense of others. This is about selling out to the prevailing me culture. 
And love for God has no hope when that kicks into a life. And so what John says here, and if you like, here is a further test that you know Jesus. We've had the moral test and the social test. Here's another test whether or not you know Jesus. Do not love the world. You've got to increasingly distance yourself from these worldly characteristics. Don't entertain the desires of the flesh. Don't buy into the lust of the eyes and pray. Because if you do, you will not honestly or with integrity love God with all your heart, soul, strength and mind. Because these other things will dictate. But what's fascinating, I'm nearly done. What's fascinating about these three elements is to recognize that they've been about since the beginning of time as the way in which the evil one tries to compromise your love. This is exactly how our adversary tries to compromise our affection for God. Think about it. Now, I don't have time to do this justice, but see if you go back to the Genesis Garden. Listen to this line of attack just before it all came crashing down. When the woman saw that the fruit of the, of the tree was good for food. There is the desire of the flesh targeted. When she saw that it was pleasing to the eye, there was the lust of the eyes awakened. When she saw that it was also desirable for gaining wisdom, there is the attraction of status and self-promotion and pride. See, you could be God-like, says the evil one. And so when she bought into those three characteristics of worldliness says she ate it. Right from the beginning of time, these three things have targeted human affection, each working in opposition to God, each working in opposition to a love for God. Fast forward from the Genesis Garden to Matthew 4 wilderness. This time the target is none other than Jesus Christ. And there again, the three elements come into play. Satan says, turn these stones into bread, Jesus. The desire of the flesh targeted. And then the evil one takes Jesus and shows him all the kingdoms of the world, the lust of the eyes awakened. And then he says, do you know something? I'll give it to you. I'll give it all to you. Satan offers Jesus status, recognition and attention. The pride of life. And Adam and Eve caved in. They chose to love the world. Jesus didn't. And interestingly, someone tell me how Jesus overcame the evil one and the allure of worldliness. What did he do? He quoted scripture. Because you see, the word of God lived in him. So it all ties together and so in this letter to us to every child of God John says do not love the world don't give in to the desires of the flesh don't give in to the lust of the eyes don't give in to the pride of life and as we journey through this life. There's no doubt that the temptation to love this world, to embrace its philosophy, will be a constant reality. 
But what I love about this section, as John brings it to a close, is he gives us such a compelling reason for not loving the world. Look at verse 17. The world and its desires pass away. Do you know something's not going to last? None of what the world offers truly satisfies or remains long term. Which is one of the reasons why, even before death, so many people who have bought into this philosophy actually are convinced of the alarming emptiness of their lives. What was the point? You can't take any of that with you. And so John's advice, don't love what won't last. Instead, remember the bigger picture. The eternal dimension of life, which when that's grasped and when that is lived, encourages us to love God and follow his ways, which is why John concludes this bit by saying, do you know something? See, the person that does the will of God, they live forever. Do not love the world. It's a dead end, literally. Rather, love God. And guess what? You'll live forever. And so as you walk out of here this morning, I hope and pray you will celebrate your identity. You are forgiven. You know Jesus. You have overcome the evil one. And may the word of God live in you. Immerse yourself in this. And do not love the world. Instead, be thy my vision.